0: Welcome to New Realities. I'm Alan Steinfeld, and this program is about the evolution of consciousness. And somebody who's been at this for a long, long time, who I've known for a long, long time, is Barbara Han Clough. She is, well, an amazing astrologer, but she's been, I would say, Barbara, you've been tracking the progress of the spiritual evolution in, on the planet for the last, I guess, maybe 30 years or more, right?
1: Actually, I've been actually tracking it for about 75 years, okay. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not 120. The reason I've been tracking it is because my Cherokee grandfather put me in charge of that task, and the main book about that particular part of my data is Catastrophobia, which is now called Awakening the Planetary Mind. So I've been literally tracking the progress of the planetary evolution since I was four or five years old when my grandfather decided to train me.
0: Well, you are so prolific. I mean, I have some of your books, Awakening the Planetary Mind, Astrology of the Rising Kundalini, Pleiadian, Earth, Energy, Astrology, and the Revelations of the Ruby Crystal. Those are just a few that I have, but how many books have you written all together?
1: right around 20. I haven't really kept track. Um, and then I've gone through lots of revisions. So because what would happen is I put out a data bank like Catastrophobia, which was the first version of Awakening the Planetary Mind. And then so many things immediately fell into line with pretty really radical theories that I had published that actually come from Cherokee wisdom. And so I kept, I kept having to revise things. And so I switched to fiction 10 years ago. Like, the Ruby Crystal is the first book in the Revelations trilogy.
0: It's Native American wisdom combined with astrology, though, because that's a big part of how you look at the world. Most
1: Native teachers um, use astrology within varying degrees. I mean, all of us basically really believe in astrology. And so the only thing that's unusual about my astrological work is that I also did a lot of work um, in past life regression under hypnosis. And so for my graduate thesis, um, I did a comparison of Jungian psychoanalytic theory and past life regression under hypnosis. And the purpose of that was that Jungian psychotherapy is so expensive that I wanted to find out whether there was a way for people to get to that level of psychological depth was something that was less time consuming and therefore less expensive. And so in order to do my master's thesis, um, I had to do 100 sessions under hypnosis into my own past lives. So once I did that, of course, I ran into being an astrologer over and over and over again. So I definitely have some techniques in my astrological work. Um, that are coming from very, very ancient wisdom just because of past life recovery. But otherwise, I'm pretty much a conventional doctrinaire astrologer, except that I'm not doing, haven't been doing readings for years because of the level of research. I'm more a research astrologer, historical research astrologer.
0: But what's your approach? Is it uh, some people are Uranian, some people are um, different aspects they focus on? You know, asteroids, is there a particular focus of your astrology that you looked at when you look at astrology?
1: I use all of those techniques as part of what I do, but I always start with the nodes of the moon in order to determine what this person's soul has chosen in this lifetime. Like, why did they come here at this time? So I start with trying to figure out why they're here right now and try to get a sense of the background data they have from their past lives. And then I, I go into a reading um, a, on a more more or less conventional basis.
0: I love all the stuff you're doing and no one's ever really talked about the rising Kundalini and astrology like you have. So now that's
1: the original theory, yeah. And um, that, the, the basis of astrology and the rising of Kundalini is that Uranus opposition triggers kundalini rising to in varying degrees, not necessarily total, but at least some in all people. And this goes counter to Eastern wisdom It goes counter to all kinds of things that everybody gets this kundalini rising. But I just kept, finding out that's what was happening to my clients and I also was finding that they were having a really hard time when they were rolling along in a more or less ordinary conventional life and all of a sudden blammo and so that's an entirely original theory which has now been adopted I I published that I think I can't remember
0: This astrology book was. uh, It says copyright 1991.
1: This yeah, there you go. Way back in 1991, so that's more than thirty years now. And what has happened is almost all astrologers are using that as part of their astrological analysis. And I've never heard anybody attribute it to me. It was. It was one of those things that was so obvious that once I noticed it and then started showing how it worked, everybody went, oh yeah, and they forgot who invented it.
0: <laughs> well, I'm gonna do a Kundalini conference at some point. I'll invite you on there, but-
1: I'll let me come.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I want you to come to a bunch of conferences I'm doing. It's time for you to come out because you, you've been around so long and you know everyone, but I you haven't been, well, I haven't seen you at the expos and all these conferences that come up. So I think it's time. time. yeah well that would be lovely and a lot of my work in it regarding um
1: being on you know out there was sacred site work so i've had 20 or 30 years of of activating energies at global sacred sites and with all the travel and with all the i was a publisher after all for 20 years
0: right bear and company i want to see say barbara and her husband started bear and company really a major force in spiritual literature let me just ask you about the uranus opposition opposition to what what is it opposing
1: uranus um takes 84 years to go around the sun Right. So therefore, when we're sometime somewhere between um, 36 and 42, 43 years old, the Uranus, Uranus's orbit is slightly elliptical. Uh-huh. Um, we get a Uranus opposing the Uranus in our chart. And when Uranus comes around to that 180 degree angle, oh, it's just like the full moon. What it does is it kicks off all the Uranian force in our physical bodies. And so, because of this differential in terms of timing, the book has uh, has uh, charts at the end where people can look up their, their year and date of birth. And then you can look up and see when you actually get Uranus opposition. Oh. And this is really important. What I like people to do with this book, and this book has actually been, it's a funny thing, it's been quite popular and it sold a lot, but nobody knows that the person who wrote and invented theory, which is really amusing. Right. Um, so at any rate, I'd like people to read it sometime just before their Saturn return. Saturn return is when we're around 29 to 30. Well, that's easy, because that's 29 to 30. It takes right. Saturn 29 to 30 years to go around the sun. So right. with Saturn return, our life's purpose comes into view. And 90% of people, if not more, make a major change at Saturn return. They, they get a, a career job, or they have a child, or they get whatever, get a divorce, whatever it is, but with Uranus opposition, not as many people do it so successfully because it's so traumatic. So the real point of this book is to really help people for that great transformational experience, of which, which in the culture is known as midlife crisis.
0: Right, you know, I was born with a uh, Uranus opposition to my son, my one degree Aquarius in opposition to Uranus and Leo at zero degrees right. Leo so um that i think that birthed me in with a kundalini awareness actually a kind of um a spe- that's a really
1: define, defining aspect yeah you, know, you have to bring out the power of uranus with with the development of yourself for sure and you're a leader in the aquarian age because of that as as i've been also right because it affects to uranus so as we go into the aquarian age you and i have a lot of um, natural understanding of what's going on here, and we're probably teachers about how how to help people comprehend what's happening.
0: Well, have we entered, when did you, would you say the Aquarian age began? I mean, of course, it's not one moment, it's a, it's like a sunrise, but what, what is the dates do you give for that?
1: Well, as you know, it's a two to three hundred year shift, And so for me, we start to really see just the really early vestiges of Aquarius at the end of the 19th century, as we're going into the 20th century and into the early 20th century. And then as we go through the 20th century and up at this point, now we're in the 21st century. What I was looking for was, as you know, understanding astrology, a major shift in energy gets kicked off often by a series of aspects. It takes a whole series of aspects to wake to awaken the consciousness of the change that's actually going on. I actually think that what really popped the cork and made it impossible for people to ignore the fact that change was going on is the end of the Mayan calendar, which is 2011-2012. Yeah. And of course there's all kinds of astrological aspects that we could pick, out that also kicked it off like Uranus or Pluto right after the Mayan calendar ended. But I really think that it's it's incredible that the Mayans had the capacity to call that date thousands of years ago. It's always, always really mystified me.
0: Well, I think what was so important about that whole Mayan calendar, the harmonic convergence, you know, you knew Jose Aguias, of course, and that, that whole thing he started with Going from the harmonic convergence in 87 and said these next 25 years will be the the sort of recycling of time and in 2012 we have a definitive movement towards the new age, whatever you want to call this is what he kind of said, but I think what it did mostly was gears towards a galactic understanding because we were no longer just solar based. We were galactic based with uh, the 2012 awareness. So
1: yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think that shift to actually being sensitized to the influence of the galaxy just suddenly became very prominent, didn't it? Because right. It unavoidable. And that's why I like terms like the galactic Maya because the Maya definitely are galactic teachers to us on planet earth and then there's also that issue of the photon band which which came through in the pleiadian agenda other people have also talked about the photon band a lot but that 25 year period that you're talking about is actually the period when our sun really went fully into the photon band and then once we went fully into the photon band, that's our sun, then what happens is our planets, the planets are in and out because they're going around the sun. And so it took a number of years for also the, the whole solar system to be in the photon band, which we are at this time. And in your, on your screen, you look like
0: you're in the photon band. I- <laughs> <laughs> is that too is, too? is it too distracting? Well, I feel like I've been in the. Oh, no,
1: I'm enjoying it because it's like oh, I'm seeing all these photons, you know, photon light going off.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, go ahead. I was just. Done. Well, I was just
1: going to say, and because of that quality of the photon band, which makes us multi-dimensional, this issue of nine to eleven dimensions, which is how our brain actually functions. Um, So many people just have no idea what's going on, and so I just spend most of my time just trying to help people just be on the earth and be grounded on the earth plane, because we're becoming multidimensional so fast, that people just don't know where they are.
0: We we are becoming multidimensional. I mean, that's like sort of become a mainstream word, you know? Yeah. There's, there's a new book out by some of the disclosure people, if you've been following the UFO uh, disclosure drama that's unfolding since 2017. Um, okay. yeah. There's a book out called Skinwalkers at the Pentagon that just came out, which is wow. talks about the government's investigations into what they call the paranormal, but really the existence of multidimensional realities is what they're looking at in a really mainstream way.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, and I just I'd like to say skinwalkers. I love that term. A term. Yeah, yeah. Navajo,
0: term? but it's kind of a creepy term, isn't it? It's like a sort well,
1: of. It's a creepy term in the past when people just didn't really realize something was going on, but there is something going on, yeah. So you like oh, not, and the skinwalker term has to do with that sense of walking in other dimensions, which is is not really a negative thing at all, but. If people get broken open too quickly or too fast or, or have no way of comprehending what's going on, then a term like that might might feel like it's negative. It doesn't feel negative to me, but I can see.
0: But let's talk about your work because it's so important. And what's your latest book called? Revelations from the Source, Revelations from the Ruby Crystal,
1: Revelations from the Aquarian Age this is the second book, came out in 2018. Right. And Revolution from the Source is just hitting Amazon in the stores now.
0: What do you go to in that book? What is, why is that book so important? Because I think it is. It's
1: important to me because I achieved my lifetime goal. My Which- lifetime goal always was to write a great novel. And it's just, just been my goal that I never was able to pay. I, ha- I wasn't able to pay attention to it until I was 70. Wow. And so the, the first book, Revelations of the Ruby Crystal, is about all of the characters and all of the people. It mostly takes place in Rome and in Italy and somewhat in the United States. But there's a timeline going all the way through all three books of the Vatican and issues in Rome and politics in the United States. So all the way through this trilogy, we have a timeline operating from 2011 to uh, to, uh, 2021. The first book is just the stories of the characters. There's a couple of love stories. The usual stuff in fiction because, you know, if you're going to write a trilogy, you've got to really build the characters. So then once the characters were really built and constructed and most importantly, once they live for people and people tell me that they are living for people because most new age nonfiction writers who try to write fictions, they miss the fact that you got to have great characters.
0: Absolutely right. That's what's been so awful with New Age literature. It's yeah. just been concepts and spiritual ideas, and there's no real substantial person to hold on to, which you need if you're reading any sort of book. You need somebody to relate to, or else it doesn't mean anything.
1: Yeah, and you need to get really hooked on the story of that person. Right. Yeah, group that group of characters right and so then the second book revelations of the aquarian age develops the 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 way time is changing first of all there's the characters in their milieu and in their lives but then we start seeing them almost in a movie level level of progression where they're moving through their lives and things are starting to happen and that um revelations of the aquarian age covers 2015 through 2018 And that period of time was just when a whole lot of us were starting to realize, "Uh uh-oh, something's really going on here, especially when someone like Donald Trump showed up.
0: Right, (laughs) yeah.
1: we We start rocketing through time. And then in Revelations from the Source, we have the actual ascension of these characters. And this is in the middle, this is 2018 to 2021, so this is in the middle of COVID-19, this is in the middle of lockdown. You're writing
0: about COVID and the pandemics in and all. In the
1: third book, yeah. Of course, I, in the first two books, it hadn't appeared yet.
0: Right, but okay. what, what do you, how do you define ascension, at least in that book? Because everyone has their own idea about ascension and- Yeah, right,
1: okay what I do is these these are characters these are people that you know this could be your best friend these characters are so much more interesting than anybody else who is around me I probably would have been willing to socialize with you but I just couldn't stand talking and spending my time with people who weren't interested in astrology weren't interested in cosmic issues weren't interested in um ascension and when I say ascension I mean taking themselves Upward, so that they are living their soul right in this lifetime that's what ascension is to me ascension is having your soul embodied in your lifetime and living from a soul perspective so these characters are really highly developed people we have a great Jungian analyst um, named Lorenzo Giannini we have a New York Times reporter who's really brilliant who's married to a a church um, uh, expert in theology. And we have these wonderful Italian, I, wrote, I use a lot of aristocrats, Ellen. And, and the reason I wrote about aristocrats in this trilogy was because often they have a tremendous amount of free time and can really pursue alchemy and you know, development of the self. And one of the characters is Alessandro de' Medici. So we have the de' Medici Renaissance theme coming in. But the ascension in the third book has to do with all of the characters going to the highest level of consciousness. And and, and it's a really amazing thing because one of the characters, um, a, a guy named Armando Pierlione, a painter, he was basically as satanic as you can get in the beginning in Ruby Crystal. But by the time we get to the third book, he has fallen in love, become a father, and become a really, really well-rounded person. And then he starts painting these incredible paintings that actually start causing people in Florence, where he's located, Yeah, he's, he's, he's in the Uffizi, he is actually showing people high, high levels of consciousness right in his paintings, almost like Salvador Dali. He's at a really, really high level. Do
0: you have an idea of what those paintings actually look like, or you just describe them, but are there actually images that you see?
1: Uh, you, you really came up with a good one. I, I think I put the worst task I could have ever put on one of my children. Liz, <laughs> Cloud, Liz Cloud is my fourth child and she's my daughter, my only daughter. And Liz Clow actually had to paint, she did illustrations for the book that show you what Armando was doing. And even she said, she doesn't paint his paintings. You could tell from the book that if you went to the Uffizi and saw one, it wouldn't be quite like the one that you see in the book. But Lizzie, I call her, actually managed to paint at, at this level, at that level, this really high level of ascension consciousness So in the third book, the third book is a a rocket ship. And I think most importantly, it shows great people dealing with reality once the lockdown set in. If anybody really wants to know what I actually think is going on here with the virus, um, read this book.
0: There needs to be another book, obviously, right? Because we're just in the middle of this whole passageway into something else unknown.
1: I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether I'll go back to nonfiction and write about, um, maybe I'll write about viruses, but right. what I'm trying to say is it's obvious what we have to do, and um, and so that could be enough.
0: Right, right. But I just want to ask you about characters, because I was a literature major, and were they coming to you as real beings? Were they coming out of your uh, mind? Were they people you, based it on people you know? Where did you get these you know, very uh, alive characters from. Well,
1: as a literature major, do you love Anthony Trollope?
0: Well, I haven't studied, I studied a lot of James Joyce, so- a lot of
1: James Joyce. Well, James Joyce will do too, but it just so happens that Anthony Trollope, who wrote 60 major works of unbelievable fiction, he actually got his characters the same way I did. Although I didn't know when they came, that that i found out when i read you know an analysis of the way he wrote i found out what happened to him so what happened was in 2010 i decided to let nonfiction go and i decided to write fiction and i can assure you that my publisher was not happy this is known as one of the deadliest moves that you could make in publishing and i was an acquisitions editor for 20 years right. i never would have advised anybody to do what i was going to do but i figured since i was 70 it was my time. So I went into my writing studio, which is filled with crystals and all sorts of magical objects. And I sat down and I said, Okay, I'm going to write fiction, how am I going to do this? Immediately, the Pleiadians came in like that they, they usually do. My, and they're just my muse, they're my guides. Sometimes I think the Pleiadians are my higher self, doesn't matter what they are, they said, get out a yellow pad and a pen and start writing. They gave me the names and the ages and the profession and the background and the family um, structure of all of the characters except one and this book covers three generations we have grandparents we have young young and medium age adults and we even have some grandchildren so it's a fair of the kind of characters It's a fairly complex structure, but because it's only a few families, most people don't find, you know, some books like that just drive me crazy. But this one is actually written in such a way that it's very, very understandable. And so there I was three hours later with a couple of legal pads filled with all the writing. I went into the kitchen. My husband was in the kitchen cooking lunch. And I said, guess what just happened? And I described the characters to him and told him what was happening. And he did the most amazing thing, Alan, because it's the first time he's ever done it. Jared never liked the stuff that I could write, that <laughs> I was writing. He couldn't figure out what I was talking about. Jerry was Mr. Bear, El Presidente Bear Company. And he ran the company, and he was more or less a businessman with a lot of, he's an Aquarian, and I'm an Aquarian, so we, a lot of affinity. But he looked at me, he said, you have to write this. And I went, what? After, you know. I'd finish with some some description of something, and he would say Chiron, or he'd say Kundalini. What are you talking about? And he just said, "You have to do this. You have to tell the story."
0: Right. And so
1: that that's how they came in. They came that way, and it turns out they're all fragments of me, of course, in in good fiction the characters are always fragments of the writer. Or they they,
0: may be um, dimensional beings that exist on some level that you're tapping into, right? I mean, that's also the possibility that these are somehow consciousnesses that you're picking up.
1: Yeah, I mean, like for example, you're a multi-dimensional being living in Earth life and so am I. So yeah, so, so then regarding that aspect of it, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. After I got the first maybe 20 chapters written, I reached a total impasse with Armando Pierleone. Now, Armando Pierleone at that point was a rakish Italian painter who was basically abusing every woman in sight, etc. He was a really bad guy, and my daughter, Lizzie, had said, "Mom." I'm a really nice person, okay? I'm happily married, I'm a nice mom, I lead a nice life. But my, Lizzie said, forget all of that, make him as bad as you can make him. So I did. But then I reached after 20 and I didn't know what the hell to do with him. And so then I had an amazing apparition. Lorenzo Giannini, the, the best Jungian analyst in Rome, and he's modeled after somebody, of course, appeared in the room uh-huh. and, and said, I have been doing analysis work with Armando for 10 years now, and I'm sick of him. And if you're going to ever figure this guy out, and if he's ever going to go to the next level, you're going to have to work with me. So all the way through the rest of the trilogy, um, Lorenzo Giannini, the analyst, is analyzing people, taking them into past lives, taking them into life between lives, taking them all the way through the levels of consciousness that we as humans can embody and so the book is teaching about what all of us are capable of all of us can do this it's just uh, a matter of whether you
0: want to or not so and when in the finale of this third part you bring them all the characters to this point of 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 awakening in a sense right you bring them yeah. and 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 do you feel that that's the potential that can happen to us as we kind of pass through this darker well, time.
1: Yeah, you're, you're, put, you're putting that in a really interesting way because there's some, th- some things I, about it I don't really understand. But what I did was I put all of, not all of the characters, the main characters
0: right. into
1: um, a ceremony in a place called Sintra Portugal, which is a really, really amazing sacred site with an amazing temple. And what happens is those characters all go through a ceremony that I carried out globally on the earth during this lifetime for 30 years, which is called a Pleiadian agenda activation. Because once the Pleiadian agenda came in, the only way I could really teach those levels was to take people into ceremony. So this book has an authentic, deep, portrayal of that nine to 11 dimensional ceremonial, it's a multi-dimensional contact. And so far people reading it are telling me that they just go right into the ceremony and they do the ceremony. People are wow. saying that, and it was terribly, terribly hard to write it, as you can imagine. Um, in, but, in that
0: ceremony, they reach a place of awakening.
1: They reach the place of awakening with the central core of, of the, the earth itself in relationships with galaxy. It's in, a, in other words, it's any great ceremony that we conduct on earth is, is an earth awakening. So right. it's a real earth awakening of consciousness. And then once that was done, then I realized I had achieved my goal. Now, remember what my goal was? To write a great novel. Right. Because the tricky thing about novels (laughs) is to have the middle part not fall into the mud and have the final part of the book, especially a trilogy, pulling everything together. And so I achieved it at that point. But then I also had to write an afterword that would take us way beyond that ceremony and actually probably into the next few hundred years of consciousness.
0: And, and that's what you do in the afterword to the book.
1: Yeah, so there's a short afterword with Alessandro oh, wow. de' Medici after what? that ceremony that that puts this into context because when you go, you know, when you go to an amazing ceremony like that and you have an amazing experience, like, where does it fit in? And wow. so then I go into what that fits into.
0: Have you thought of making this into a film, a movie, um, selling the rights to that?
1: Oh, this would be one of the most amazing movies. And I often wish that I knew James Cameron, Cameron because I think he would probably love to put this into a film. But
0: well, do you have anyone working on that? Selling the options? No. no? I've never had an agent in the, for any
1: I'm work s- or anything. I'm, gonna, I'm
0: see gonna see what, if I can talk to, I mean, not that I am not connected yeah. to that field, but it sounds like it would be a great book because-
1: I think the whole trilogy would be a great great film.
0: Because there's a lot of very poorly done spiritual movies out there that don't really, like you said about novels, they don't have a center. They may have and they don't have the character development. Yeah. That yeah.
1: yeah. Is needed. People, people mysteriously, and I won't make any accusations, but things appear a few years after one of my books come out that in film that are <laughs> definitely. Like what? What the bleak do I know in relationship to alchemy of nine dimensions?
0: Well, but yeah, I was thinking of that film, which wasn't really a great film. It had great ideas, but it didn't have any real depth yeah. of characters. But the ideas, I was
1: happy to see somebody do something, you know. And then two years after Ruby Crystal, Ruby Crystal is a major exposure of the depths mm-hmm. of sexual abuse, priestly sexual abuse. In the Catholic Church, yeah, really... see that lightning bolt on the top of the
0: Vatican. Yes, that, uh, yes. Did
1: you Did you know that when uh, Ratzinger Benedict 16th stepped down, and they elected the, the the date, the moment that he stepped down, two big lightning bolts struck the Vatican.
0: You know, I think I did see that. That was so. What do you think was that a negative thing?
1: No, it certainly indicated a lot of of energy coming from somewhere pretty high up and going right through the Vatican um but that's a photograph people were out there with their cameras zoom i mean not zooming.
0: yeah i saw a picture of that lightning striking the vatican yes, which it is, is
1: it's on the cover of the book oh, wow yeah. so but, i went, really went after princey sexual abuse then right two years after that trying to remember the name of this film i'm probably not going to be oh
0: movie. yeah the one that was made and yeah i remember that film that you're talking about that was made in hollywood about the abuse, um, yeah,
1: it, it, and I wish I could remember the name because it's a good—it's a good movie. It's showing a priest and his life and all that, but um, it's exactly the same content as Ruby Crystal. So that's but, what's happened so far. I think people have been very inspired, and I honor them for it. I don't—I really don't believe that I own something. Do you, do you know what I mean? I mean, I do my best to create something and describe it, but I don't think I own it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your other work. The Pleiadian agenda was so important and kind of geared to people towards the awareness of the Pleiadian presence. You want to talk about that and that whole connection to those realms? Of course, you helped produce Barbara Marciniak's book about the Pleiades. I mean, you were, you published that. So uh, talk about the Pleiadian presence.
1: Okay. Well, in my
0: universe...
1: Um, the reason the Pleiadians have such an impact on us is that I feel, and I know from Indigenous teaching or, you know, Cherokee teaching, that the Pleiadians have really been involved with earthlings during the Paleolithic age, especially the last 100,000 years. And this is the period of our evolution where we <clears throat> developed art and it began to show evidence for the soul in the human body. Right. And so the Pleiadians are very, very deep guides for us. I think they probably have visited here in um, it probably come here. I don't really know too much about that. Um, right. I am i don't know what to say about that. You're much more of an expert than I am. In,
0: well, you're um, in touch with something, maybe they're, whether they're here yeah. or not, you're in touch with that level of consciousness. So yeah. you can talk about that. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, it, well, and it's the Pleiadian level of consciousness has to do with the open heart, especially it has to do with the care for the children. Um, and so um, I'm a pretty typical, uh, well, first of all, Ellen, when I grew up and was trained by my grandfather, I was taught that I was from the Pleiades. So my fundamental understanding of myself as a child was that I had come here from the Pleiades to be on the earth. And I got into real trouble in the first grade when the teacher asked each one of the children to say where they come from. And of course I said the Pleiades. And that started my troubles that went wow. all the way through school, yeah, that was, I wish somebody, I wish my grandfather told me not to say that, but he just taught me that's, that's where I was from. And that's, and i that I still feel, I feel that. I feel as much on the Pleiades as I do here.
0: So what's the Pleiadian agenda going back all those years you wrote that book, I mean, what would you say their agenda is for us, Earthlings?
1: Their agenda has definitely been to open us up to multidimensional consciousness and also to prepare us for the end of the Mayan calendar. So they had a really big job going on with us and you can see it with all the Pleiadian channels through the eighties and nineties and up to the end of the Mayan calendar. And they're still present here and still involved here. But not like that movement, that incredible movement, just breakout of Pleiadian
0: wisdom. Right, the 2012 movement towards a galactic awareness was that whole Pleiadian kind of yeah. um, framework, right? Would you would you say?
1: But, other, other extraterrestrial influences too, but certainly the Pleiadians are very strong influence.
0: What does the astrology look like planetarily? Where are we going as 21 to 2022 20, and? beyond and you also had um, other ET um, kind of aspects so where do you feel like I mean I know you write about it in the afterword of the book but what can you can you give us a little taste of where you think we're going
1: yeah I think the most important thing to imprint right now and I'm I really want to know if you agree with this okay. is we've had three squares of Saturn and Uranus this year the first one was like February and then there was one in June and the last one is um, Christmas Eve on December 24th. And in the book itself, in I, I do cover quite a bit of astrology, by the way, in source. I get into the transits in 2019-2020 um, because of Saturn conjunct Pluto and because of the Capricorn transits.
0: Saturn conjunct Pluto, is this the whole COVID uh, yeah. crisis? Whatever the source of that was, that's up. Is that that's the Saturn Pluto yeah, I'll
1: cover, I'll cover in the book? Claudia Tagliati, the um, the lover of the Jungian analyst, is a great astrologer, and of course, a fragment naturally fragment of me. Oh. And so she was watching like a hawk in the latter part of source for what was going to happen in January 2020. Because with astrology, we can predict when something is going to happen. We can predict the quality of that. So with Saturn conjunct Pluto in in Capricorn, it had to do with a fundamental um, like completion of a long-term structural uh, 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 format on planet Earth. And then it had to do with something happening to break that whole structural
0: format wide open. That's what we knew. And that's what Claudia knew.
1: Right, So, so what, wait,
0: wait. Those breaking it open was the Saturn Pluto. Is that what broke the structure open? Was the Pluto with Saturn? Right. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. January fourteenth,
1: Saturn conjuncted Pluto, just when we got the reports on the early cases in Wuhan. So, at that point, Claudia then knew, and I knew, and you probably knew also, that that was the, that was going to be the theme. That it was going to have to do with viruses and pandemics and global issues with public health and stuff like that. Then there's another thing to insert in here. The other thing that I watch really closely is when Saturn conjuncts Jupiter every 20 years. And we astrologers um, all watch for Saturn conjunct um, Jupiter. And um, so with Saturn conjunct Jupiter, um, we have a thing called a trigon, which is every 20 years, which
0: affects economics and politics and war there seems to be a war every 20 years too i mean would you say that's connected to that well i would say that the
1: last trigon 2000 to 2020 i've always called that the bush trigon right because george bush got in and then took off with all the wars in the middle east right but as we go further into aquarius and the book really fleshes this out um, regarding why war is going to have to end during the age of aquarius and it has a lot of information about how we got stuck in war during the age of Aries, which is like 100 BC to uh, 2200 BC, All right? And then the age of Pisces became wars for God for 2000 years. In other words, instead of that Aryan war ending, it just got worse because then they attributed everything to Yahweh and God and Blamo again. And it has to end during Aquarius. One thing we know is the ecology of our planet can't take it anymore and everybody knows that and we're going to have to find our way out of it. So the bush trigon from 20 from 2000 to 2020 is the last trigon in earth. In this case it was in Taurus. Mm-hmm. And then once we get to the trigon that's covered in the book, so the trigon is a big deal in in source also and Claudia's like watching to see what it means and all this kind of stuff. Then we're in air and the trigon from 2020 to 2040 is an air trigon, when I think that war will be extremely decreased on this planet. And so now I'm calling this trigon, with this covered in source, I'm calling it the virus trigon. Uh
0: Uh-huh, and that's another war. That is sort of a world war on another level. I mean, that- Yeah,
1: it's a world war on the second dimension, because in my system, first dimension is the center of the earth, Second dimension is the the world of microbes and viruses below the crust of the earth. Then we're on the surface of the earth in 3D. So we're living on the surface on 3D. And the scientists have decided we're just going to eradicate all the viruses. And so they've come up with all these vaccines and all kinds of what they think are wonderful technologies. And we won't even go into it. We don't have
0: um, to. Don't I'm have.
1: not an expert in it, so we'll just leave it alone. Okay. But I'm calling um, this trigon, the virus trigon. 20 to
0: the 2040 um, decades, this um, score of time, um, will be that shift. And more. And would you say? and the and Yeah, the-
1: so let's go back to this year. Yeah. yeah. Which is, okay, so get the Saturn conjunct Pluto in early 2020. Then we get the trigon at the end of 2020. And so you got, the, you had this tremendous infusion of a whole new structural order that we don't see until we start living it out. So then we have 2021 this year. And this is the important message. Um, the Saturn, Aquarius, square in Uranus and Taurus. We had the first one in February. We had the second one in, um, in like, August, And we're getting the third one right before Christmas. So that Saturn square Uranus is a a structural tension between making a new structure and taking the whole structure and tearing it apart. It's a tremendously nervous energy of struggle between making a structure and then revolution and tearing it all to pieces. And And so, this is happening in
0: Aquarius, though the square Uranus uh, and Aquarius.
1: Yeah, Saturn's in in Aquarius. Right. But um, Uranus is in Taurus. Right. So then, if you look at it that way, Uranus is uncomfortable in Taurus. Uranus wants to break out and go, and Taurus wants steady, keep it cool. Right. Right. Then with Saturn. Saturn is, Saturn is uncomfortable in Aquarius because Saturn wants to make the structure and Aquarius wants to tear it up. So (laughs) this is the reason that 2021-
0: has been horrible horrible. and uncomfortable and everyone's uncomfortable, yes.
1: Everybody's uncomfortable, anybody notice? But I think it's been more uncomfortable for us because it's been personally uncomfortable. we're experiencing saturn square uranus in our personal reality in our personal level of creation and it's just been incredibly uncomfortable but you know what i noticed on october 10th that stuff is starting to leak out so it's starting to balance and it has to balance because you can't have a situation where globally all the information is on one side of the fence let's just let's just leave it at that i think as we come up to this third square all the way through this fall and up to Christmas Eve um, with third square, I think there's going to be more and more revelation and information about the whole dynamic instead of only part of it. Is the and third that-
0: square still Saturn and Aquarius, Uranus and Taurus? Is that still the same? Yes, yeah, third
1: square, the third one is, is December 24th. Okay. So, I think we're in the middle of it's almost like we're in the middle of an alchemical annealing furnace, would be a yeah. way to put it. Each it of us in the future yeah. personally. And yeah. what it has done is it has really caused a lot of us to grow tremendously. I see tremendous growth in people, even if what I see is insane resistance to looking at anything, I can see growth. Well, where
0: does uh, 2022 bring us then?
1: Um, I, to tell you the truth, I haven't looked much beyond. I've been mainly staying in this this range of time right now. I'm, sometime next year, after I finish promoting this trilogy, I'm probably going to do some more astrological analysis.
0: Because it seems like it sort of opens up then. It seems like, you know, after I mean, just my feeling is it kind of, the the the, the hard part's been, we've been through the hard part and now I think new ideas, new technologies, new possibilities have been created because of that alchemical furnace. The friction that yeah. we that is so obvious. The friction is what we've been through. Yeah,
1: yeah. as we the new technologies come in, and they're all extremely important to us. Um, right now, we're facing a threat of just an incredible amount of of. Uh, control and invasion of privacy. And so there's going to be a big struggle over um, whether the technologies are going to serve us as people or whether they're going to be agents of control by the elite. Mm -hmm. And as you know, the U.S. gets its uh, Pluto return in February. I don't remember the exact date.
0: But Uh,
1: that, that means that Pluto is in 27 Capricorn in the 1776. U.S.A. chart, where, where the United States came together as the United States, and we get our first Pluto return next year. And so the only thing I can say about 2022 is the U.S. is going to be the theater of, of the global craziness because of what's happening in the U.S. itself. Because the U.S. is going to be tremendously challenged in 2022 to even hold together. Uh-huh. Very, very challenging.
0: Well, what about the? Some people are predicting some of that Uranus movement is actually bringing in more the presence of ETs. Are you getting something about that as well? Um, uh, uh,
1: that's a great segue. I think what you are probably waking up to. You no, know, you already know, and I'm waking up because I haven't paid too much attention to contact and all, just because of all the stuff that I do. Um, but it's real clear to me that about 95% of what actually goes on in our economy and governments. Can actually be better understood by understanding extraterrestrial influence. And so I think in 2022, with that Pluto return, um, I'm looking forward to some revelations regarding extraterrestrial influence. And Alan, the most important one to me is the story of Serpo. And I don't know what you think about that story. I don't know. Tell,
0: tell what story is this? The people, journey, when they went
1: to that journey to Serpo.
0: Right, where yeah. those people went and spent time on that planet. Some people say right. it was true. Other people say it wasn't true. I don't know if it was a true story. What do you think?
1: Um, that's what I was going to say. Our, Len Kasten is the one who wrote the best book on Circle, as far as I'm concerned, called Journey to Circle. And I think what he tells us there is true. He, he goes through all of the, the actual facts about the journey and, and all the... All the incredibly rich data bank of what was going on between filmmakers and Star Trek and, and uh, Close Encounters. And he really does a beautiful job of showing how we've actually been shown what's really been going on for the last 20 or 30 years mm. um, in film. And that filmmakers were actually given the data by the government, such as Spielberg. And right. so, Close Encounters is a movie about the journey to circle.
0: Oh, it is. Oh,
1: yeah. oh yeah. Oh, that's the and ending
0: it was, of it. Yes, is about. Mm-hmm. But it was yeah. kind of a disastrous journey.
1: You think it's easy to take a <laughs> to take that? What what happened was supposedly under Eisenhower. Supposedly, ten astronauts were selected because the Serpo people wanted to send a spaceship to the Earth in order to take them to Serpo so they could be on Serpo for, for 10 years. Right. So these right. these 10 or 12 astronauts went there, and three of them died during the course of being there, and two of them decided to remain when it was time to go back. So supposedly, there's two of them still living on Serpo, and then the rest of them got back and got their minds wiped at um, yeah. one of the military facilities. Now, now, Alan, if this is true, that our government was actually involved in training American citizens to be astronauts and take a journey to Serpo, mm-hmm. we have the right to know about this.
0: Well, that's just one of the things we have the right to know. There's a lot we have the right to know. We... and
1: There's a huge thing beyond that, but actually being involved in sending our people, that's
0: that's really hits core. I met Len and I wasn't sure if I believed everything he had to say, but um, we didn't talk about his, the journey.
1: His information regarding all the other levels and Antarctica and basis on Mars and all is very dark.
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure about the Mars stuff. Uh,
1: yeah, no, it's very dark. It's very dark. Uh-huh. Um, but the journey to Surfo is an entirely different Although, in order to do that journey, our government would have had to have had these involvements with Mars and Antarctica. Right. It's all one piece, but it's the compelling nature of people can imagine a lot when they start to try to think of themselves as being one of those astronauts.
0: But just separate from all that, what do you get about the ET agenda now and the Pleiadian agenda? Just psychically, when you open up,
1: I think I see. I'm pretty optimistic. I think that a the, the lot of things that are going on. Um, I just I tend to be an optimist, number one, and I think the Pleiadians are very optimistic. Yes. And when yeah. you get into some of these other databanks, some of the other extraterrestrial influences, particularly the reptilians, um, right. they're, they're, they're more. It's more difficult.
0: Well, my book is very optimistic. My uh, making contact book. It's a. It's a very hopeful in a way, it's a narrative, there it is, it's a narrative of sorts, it's a collection of essays, but I've tried to take the best in the field, and kind of show the progression from looking at the phenomena from an external nuts and bolts to an internal consciousness level, so I have an essay, I have an essay by John Mack in there, a previously unpublished essay, Mm -hmm. John
1: Mack is one of my favorites, I mean, in terms of helping us understand the psychological levels that go yes. on with yes. the issues. John Mack, his work has always been one of my favorites.
0: Right, and Whitley Strieber has a chapter in there and Linda Moulton Howe, who mm-hmm. actually uh, had just read a book about the Serpo expedition, she told me. Uh, uh-huh. And and anyway, I just, I'll just i send that to you or we'll work and on it. And that.
1: I think this is all really great because I think I do think this is really opening up like I was amazed by Mar- Marco Rubio last year, just yes. up the king of worms. And I've been watching, for example, you could say nothing happened, no disclosure happened. Well, will no. give you one example. It caused me to go back and read all of my extraterrestrial books, John Mack, etc., plus many more, just to, re- to rethink, like, what do I really think? And I think last year, a lot of people did a lot more thinking about this issue, including you writing a book. Right.
0: And the book's done well because of the government exposure and mm-hmm. and the people in there. Daryl Anka wrote a chapter as himself.
1: One of my favorites also. And I'll I'll tell you, we're getting close to the end here, so I'll just tell the funny Daryl Tell Anka story me, tell me. I was teaching with Daryl and oh, oh like a bunch of people, Barbara City but a bunch of Right. people.
0: Because you're a channel and, yourself. I mean, you had yeah, could- a
1: conference on, on Crete and yeah. I didn't do very many channeling conferences. I've rarely channeled in public. I mostly just just use it for my background data bank. But um, we were all sitting there. We were in a total altered state of five of us transmitting all this really amazing um, uh, information. I'm just trying to remember another guy who was there because it's a guy you probably pretty love. Um, but at any rate, I um, finally somebody in the audience said well would would you just tell me when the extraterrestrials are are going to come and they're like just said well, what do you think is going on right up here at this Right. <laughs> it's, it is going on it is part of our reality all the time
0: it is that is a good point barbara you're right i mean we're waiting for the extraterrestrials and we're and they're talking to us Loud and clear. And yeah. um, this is what's going on. Well, I do a, a predictions conference every year for the Open Center. Maybe you could be in the 2022, uh, what's yeah. coming as an astrologer. It's usually yeah. in January. Sure, I could, yeah. I'll, I'll let you know about that. That's also what the whole Aquarian thing has opened up. The whole Zoom communication is very yeah. Aquarian.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's and, true. I love Zoom, by the way yeah i mean i can really feel you're right here
0: in my house that's fun. well i'm going to be in new mexico actually maybe you could come to this other conference human origins conference Mm so you might if you're there in may um that would be great to come down to albuquerque to do the human origins because i think i think it's time for you to come out and speak i mean you've been hiding not i mean you've been writing books but you know, yeah. you you've been tracking this, like I said in the beginning of the interview. So you've been tracking the awakening of consciousness. That's why I'm sure you started Bear and Company because you wanted, you know, people yeah. to have access to books, and you you published some very important books there. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: speaking of that last comment, Daryl Anka.
0: He, yeah.
1: Did you did you see his wonderful picture book where he did oh. all the on all the levels of, of yeah of, i
0: think I, I have it the one he did the illustrations for
1: he did the illustrations you did it with a a, a woman writer a really wonderful woman yes writer.
0: I, I actually have that book that's it that's it um yeah.
1: beyond my wildest dreams with daryl anka and then the the, the woman is
0: kim carlsberg carlsberg
1: yeah kim carlsberg
0: yeah And of course, it's published by Bear and Company out of Santa Fe.
1: They were wonderful authors to work with. And I just love Daryl Anka. And it's wonderful because like John Mack, it shows the levels that you go through psychologically as you start to deal with your own um, extraterrestrial.
0: Yeah, he really captured some of these great images back uh, then.
1: I don't even know if it's in print anymore. I think it is. I hope it is.
0: I don't know if it is in print, but it is a good So I didn't realize Daryl did all these illustrations.
1: Aren't they wonderful?
0: They are really, they really yeah. encapsulate the phenomena. Yeah. And you know what? He is just- Oh, ju- I
1: know the other person who was on that panel. Who? Talk about boot? Kevin Ryerson.
0: What happened to him?
1: <laughs> oh, he's still around. I think, I think he's just probably living reclusively. I don't know. I haven't contacted him for a while. I-
0: I know Shirley MacLaine put him on the map years ago uh, mm-hmm. with it with that book but uh, and she's still around Shirley do you ever run into yeah, her she's
1: here in Santa first I know she's here in Santa Fe
0: right so Kevin yeah. right all those people have made a big impact on the time we're in now yeah I was something. gonna say Daryl is a great guy he's still at it he's still channeling he's still bringing in Very high level information. His movie, his movie, First Contact. Did you see that movie he did about two or three years ago? That's really good. Excellent movie, Barbara. So, what's next for you, though, personally? Where you? What's your next project?
1: Here's what I intend. I want Source to succeed as Dan Brown has succeeded. Not because I don't care about money at none of that stuff matters to me. I want lots and lots of people to read this book. And so unlike in the past, as soon as I got a book done, I would go right on and write the next one and not promote the book that just came out, which wasn't smart. Um, this time I wanna make this book happen. I wanna make it go to the level that it should go to. This is 10 years of work and it needs to come to the level that it needs to come to.
0: So you yeah, okay. So you i I I'll I'll tell some other podcasters about you and um okay, okay. are you doing,
1: and you doing I am gonna be doing astrology updates periodically. I've got three or four astrology shows that I do and I'll make sure I let you know whenever it what happens is I take a week or two to just, just master a body of material because you know how complex astrology is. You can't do it well, well on the
0: level you're doing it, it's it's very deep, you know. Yeah. Very. yeah. Oh, yeah. and you also knew my friend, uh, Guru Jagat, didn't you from? Uh...
1: Yes, I'm so sad. I just am so sad. I, my last interview with her was in December this last year. And, I, I you know, I, it, it's incomprehensible. I know. I don't, I don't understand how this could have happened.
0: I don't either. And she was in another so vital, alive. I knew her since she was 19. Remarkable woman. Now she
1: is working with us from the other side, you know. Like I, have a, I have an altar. I have an altar here um, for her um, uh-huh. that I'm working with here because she's an incredibly important person.
0: Well, up. I'll send you a, 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 psych, a medium reading about what she's doing. Uh, my friend yeah. did, but oh, I'd love I'd love to have. I've been talking to Barbara Handclaw, the author of the new book Revelations from the Source. Inner Traditions, Baron Company, get it. It's a very important book about the present and the future and the evolution of the kind of spiritual awakening we are undergoing at this moment in time. So Barbara, how can people find you and reach you? My
1: website is handclow 2012com Great. And lots of people follow that. Your interview, for instance, will be on there. What I do is I just post interviews on it do updates occasionally, and then of course my books are available all over the place and on Amazon.
0: Thank you, Barbara, for all your, you know, seventy-five years or seventy years of work. Anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, at this point, I'm I'm, I'm going to be seventy-nine. I'm getting there.
0: <laughs> all right. However, all, whatever all it right. is, <laughs> you're fine. You're you're still going strong. So. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you, Alan. It was a joy to meet with you again.
0: Thank you. Alan Steinfeld for new realities. Thank you for watching.